And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, January 12th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this USDA scientist does work that's down-to-earth. Plus, how and why the U.S. military culture is changing and why that matters to recruitment and retention. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, for the Office of Personnel Management, 2024 will be the year of pooled hiring. Now, this recruitment tactic lets agencies share lists of qualified job candidates. The idea is to speed federal hiring, which usually takes too long. Agencies have already had some success with the technique in infrastructure hiring over the last year or so. For what's coming next, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with OPM Deputy Director Rob Shriver. You're going to see a continuing emphasis on that because it just makes sense from a resource perspective. There are some agencies that do a great job recruiting uh, high-quality talent pools and have great assessments um, for those. And maybe it's because... Um, you know, there's a certain type of job that's really critical to that agency, really core. And so they've invested in the recruiting and the assessments. But, you know, they may get way more qualified candidates than they can bring on board. But other agencies want to hire people in that job, too. So why shouldn't we leverage all that investment that that particular agency has made in the recruiting and the assessment um, process? Uh, so that other agencies can hire from that certification. And OPM does the same thing. We manage some pooled hiring actions that can be, we've done some for the bill agencies. Um, For example, they needed HR help right away. And so we did a multi-agency action um, for the infrastructure agencies, and they hired a lot of HR people um, from that process. So I think you're going to see more uh, of that, uh, Drew, in 24 for sure. Just a little bit more about that. I know a lot of it, at least that I've seen uh, in the last year or so, was focused on, like you said, the bipartisan infrastructure law. Do you see this as something that's going to expand in a way, or are you trying to kind of just continue it or like ramp up the amount of uh, pool tiring that is going on? And if so, like how are you planning to to kind of build on what you've seen or done so far? So, Drew, we do two things. One is um, we are continuing to invest in this at OPM. Um, every year we ask for funding in the budget to be able to invest in these pooled hiring actions. OMB has been incredibly supportive of uh, those requests, and um, and we appreciate that. And what we do is we work with um, Chico's um, and evaluate where the greatest need is for um, pooled hiring that OPM can manage. The other thing that we do, and what we, we will continue to do that, and it will be beyond the infrastructure jobs, um, for example, I think that we may see simple hiring around tech, given all the needs that we have in the uh, in the tech world. And in fact, we've done some pooled hiring there. And, and so uh, we'll continue to do that. The other thing is supporting agencies that, um, as I mentioned, like have invested themselves in the recruitment and assessment process. So they are also allowed to manage pooled hiring actions under the Competitive Service Act. And we serve as... Um, strategic advisors on uh, for agencies that are looking to do that, and we can work with them from the very beginning of that hiring process, so that when they generate um, a certification that has a lot of great candidates, that that can be made available um, as well. Um, 
So there hasn't been as much uptake of that um, to this point. There's been some experimenting with it that has been very promising. And so I think we're going to continue to try to expand that in 24. One thing that really stuck out to me was you talked a lot about these different ideas for how to uh, change the way that the federal government recruits new employees. One of those you mentioned was skills-based hiring, been around as a goal, not just for the Biden administration, but before that as well. So I'm curious if, based on the efforts that OPM has made so far in terms of like issuing guidance on skills-based hiring, have you seen agencies taking more advantage of that? Have you seen any progress? Yes, this is um, a policy that's really important to um, this administration. And you've seen lots of states take action in this area. In fact, in, in some ways, Drew, it's hard to see this through all of the different noise around the topic, but the federal government's been a, a little bit ahead of some of the other places in this. There's actually a law that uh, prohibits positive educational requirements unless, you know, you go through like this practice of really like validating why you need that specific educational requirement. So an example is like revenue agents at the IRS, they have accounting specific requirements and the IRS has done all the legwork to show that they need those for that those particular jobs. Um, but generally speaking, like you can't require specific types of degrees um, for federal jobs. Um, and so, you know, that's what we've done is like enforce that. Now, the thing that happens though, Drew, is um, those, uh, the, even though you can't require degrees, they, they can be used as part of the HR process as sort of a proxy for skills. And the reason that agencies do that is historically, they may not have had the best assessment tools to evaluate whether people really have the skills needed for the job. So in the absence of those quality assessments, they've leveraged proxies for skills like degrees or like occupational questionnaires where people go in and rate themselves on various competencies. We've made major progress in this area and developing new skills-based assessments, um, both at OPM through our USA Hire, um, uh, uh, pool of assessments that are available to agencies and also agencies have done work on their own occupational specific assessments. So that's allowed for more uh, evolution towards skills-based hiring and rooting out those um, proxies for skills in favor of really assessing skills. Um, there's, um, and we've issued a lot of guidance on this and been working, you know, with agencies from the beginning of the administration uh, on that. Um, there's another component to it that we're also tackling, which is the qualification requirements. So a lot of qualification requirements for federal jobs talk about having uh, a year of experience at the previous lower grade level. So if you're applying for a GS-13, for example, you've got to demonstrate that your experience has been the equivalent of the experience that a GS-12 person might have. And translating that into non-federal service can be difficult. And so we're taking a look at those qualification standards and seeing if we can, instead of relying on sort of, again, the proxy of, well, you did this at the GS-12 level, you know, what are the skills that are demonstrated by a GS-12 employee and then changing the qualification standard to match those skills so that somebody who hasn't been a GS-12 employee 
but has the skills that that person has can qualify for that GS-13 job. So we're going to be digging in, and, and that's begun in 2023, and we're going to be digging in further on that in 24 to keep moving that skills-based hiring initiative forward. Rob Shriver, Deputy Director of the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how and why the U.S. military culture is changing and why that matters to recruitment and retention. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. It's no secret the U.S. Armed Forces are dealing with a recruitment shortfall, and they often can't retain the experienced people they need. Maybe it's because of a changing military culture. My next guest has documented what's going on in a book called Military Culture Shift. She's a licensed counselor who's visited troops throughout the world. Corey Weathers joins me now. Ms. Weathers, good to have you with us. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. And so what is the military culture and how is it shifting? Let's start at the beginning. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, we would define culture as, you know, what are the the traditions? What are the dynamics, the patterns, the behavioral patterns that even happen within a culture? And so we have an American culture and then we have subcultures underneath that. And the military is definitely a subculture of America, meaning we have a lot of the same behaviors, a lot of the same impacts, such as we're going to talk here probably in a few minutes about even just the impact of social media, how that's changed America. But when you look at the military as a subculture, we see some very interesting dynamics of maybe how it changes and shapes the military culture a little bit differently from the American culture. And what are some of the big shifts in military culture that you've documented in recent years? There's a lot of them. So, I mean, that's why I had to write a book on it, but I will cover a couple of the big ones. We have been talking about for a long time how even if we look at the American culture, how things have shaped politically, how things have shaped educationally, um, the military is very similar in that, you know, this has been a culture that has largely been shaped by tradition and values and to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And we have definitely, especially in media, been talking about what has changed in the military culture. Are we lowering standards? Are we different? Is there a struggle that's happening? So in the book, I basically cover how has social media impacted things in the culture. We used to be one that really was a very much in-person. We relied on in-person support. Um, There was a lot of that camaraderie. There was a lot of that neighborhood support to get us through deployments. Um, And that has definitely changed. But with the incoming generations, millennials and Gen Z have definitely changed. Um, And it doesn't have to be in a bad way, but changed our culture to become more of an online culture, one that has shifting values of why people are coming in to serve. And we see a lot of shifts in how we view authority, how we view training and information. And that is really causing a lot of conflict within the military cultures. We have older generations trying to lead younger generations. Right. Is there at least still the shared understanding that at some point in the military, you might be called on to wreck things and kill people? And that's ultimately lethality is the ultimate objective, because what did General Patton say in that movie? You know, General Patton exhorted the troops. It says nobody ever won a war by dying for your country. You win the war by making the other poor SOB die for his country. And it sounds harsh, but that's what military is all about. Is that still essential in there? That's such a great question, and it's um, been a long part of our, I guess, our culture and the reasons for serving or some of the passion. Um, you know, we have so many people that honestly, troops 
are trained and they want to go do what they're trained to do, right? Everybody wants to have, most want to have that opportunity to deploy and do this thing that they've trained to do. However, we have incoming generations that are coming in having never experienced at least wartime the way that we experienced it in the two-decade war. We're kind of in a gray zone right now. Um, it's not necessarily peace time. But when you have generations that are coming in that don't remember 9-11 and maybe are coming in after the Afghanistan withdrawal, we have a different kind of purpose and a desire for why we are serving. And so even that conversation that you just brought up has changed where how do you have a older generation, an older cohort that is leading that has that memory of what it means to serve, what it means to be in combat, serving and leading a generation that has no understanding of that at all. Yeah. And we've shown as a nation that can be learned if necessary, but sometimes that yeah. comes at great cost. And, and looking at then the changing culture and the social media impact and so forth, what, in your opinion, how does that back up to the recruitment challenge that the military is having? Well, and I personally find this fascinating because as a clinician, I'm a clinician by trade. I've served and um, I've lived with and worked with this gener this culture for almost more than 15 years. And so this has been fascinating for me to watch the behavioral shifts that have happened over time. So basically, as we saw, especially millennials coming into the military about the same time social media came on the scene for all of us, really, we took all of our conversations. We all know this, but we took all of our conversations online. And so really what's happened is as we have kind of got out of chain of command and that really disrupted our culture that's really based on a hierarchy chain of command style of getting things done millennials really introduced like maybe we don't have to go through the chain of command i can tweet my congressman i can take things all the way to the top if i need to and so over time as social media has really become a main way of communication a main way of getting things done changing things advocating all of that Gen Z has been seeing this, if you want to call it the man behind the curtain, they're seeing the internal disruption, the toxic leadership, the sexual harassment, and maybe that's not widespread across the board in every facet of our military culture. But when that's what they're seeing online as everybody's trying to work on things and advocating for things, that's really created this snowball effect where it has become another reason why our institutions are less trustworthy than they were before, at least according to that generation. Yes, that new generation has very little tolerance for something occurring, even if it doesn't affect them directly. Yeah. For sure, it does. And a lot of our institutions, military, government, churches, education systems have a low trust historically by Gallup is saying that there's lower trust in those institutions than ever. So a lot of institutions are struggling with that. The difference, though, I think, is that some of these other institutions are really doing a little bit better of a job trying to figure out how to be more transparent and authentic to win that trust back. We're speaking with Corey Weathers. She's a clinician and author of Military Culture Shift. And so what action would you recommend then that the military do to, again, focusing on the recruitment problem, because that's the feedstock for future readiness and defense of the nation, not to put it overly dramatically, but it is, since we have a volunteer force, what should they yeah. do differently, maybe? 
We have a significant issue. We all know that with the recruitment crisis. And so number one, I would say there's a lot of lessons learned that the DOD can get from these other institutions and some of these other corporations who experience cancel culture, who experience making mistakes. What can we learn from other businesses and institutions on how to build that authenticity and transparency? We kind of have this underlying fear that we can't be honest and transparent, almost as if it's because our adversaries are watching or because it affects that confidence level. But Honestly, it's the opposite. The more authentic we can be, especially with the force and those thinking about coming in, the more they will feel like this is a genuine relationship, a business relationship that they can get into. So that's number one. What lessons learned can we get from other institutions that maybe are getting it right or trying to get it right? I do believe the DOD is doing the best that they can to resolve some of these bigger issues. But really what Gen Z is looking for, millennials too, is an I'm sorry and maybe it's kind of like any other relationship, right? Like, I'm sorry is just the beginning. Sometimes it takes multiple I'm sorry's and then following that up with transparent action going forward. But the biggest thing to me, the thing that I think I'm most passionate about is retention. I honestly believe retention is a huge solution to the recruitment crisis. Gen X is really experiencing the moral injury and the stress, the compounded stress that happened over those two decades. Um, I would say older millennials too. And so those of us that have Gen Z kids, we're hearing Gen X is discouraging their Gen Z kids from joining. And considering 83% of the force has traditionally been within the family, passed down, that is hugely affecting our recruitment crisis. So I believe how do we heal that relationship with the current cohort through respite, through again that transparency and addressing some of the big issues we have of them getting the care and respite that they need. It strikes me this phenomenon is not totally unlike the phenomenon the military had in the immediate post-Vietnam era. Yes, it is. And that's one of the things that I'm hearing from both sides. I'm hearing from boomers, especially that this feels a lot like Vietnam. And Gen X is asking, is this what boomers were feeling after um, Silent Generation 2, after Vietnam? And that is a lot of what I'm hearing. I'm hearing so many that are kind of waiting out the rest of their years to retire because they feel like they can't leave until they're 20. Um, but they're kind of hanging on with that moral injury. And I'm seeing a lot of millennials are leaving because they're there. I literally had someone say to me this past week, I can find more purpose and make a bigger difference outside the military than staying in. And that was shocking and sad to me. And this strikes me that perhaps the Veterans Affairs Department, which picks up where the military left off in some large sense, will need to adjust how it delivers services and how it generally deals with its constituency once this new generation washes through to VA? Yeah, that's such a great question and so important. And there's some things that the VA is doing really right. They've led the way, and those are some lessons learned we can get from them too on leading the way on telehealth, you know, and finding out how to get mental health to veterans in remote locations. But absolutely, the VA is really going to be taking on not only just the medical issues that are not being treated because of a provider shortage that we currently have, but I think the big question is how can the VA and the American culture, because this is really going to be an all hands on deck. If you want to tie it to very much like post-Vietnam, what can we learn from the Vietnam veterans that came home where the VA can't be the only entity or institution that takes care of some of these issues? We've really got to heal those who have served our nation in some very creative ways. Their mental health, they're looking for holistic care, not just that mental health and medical care, but can they reintegrate into a society that 
even if they forgot that we are at war, that you can show that you haven't forgotten, that you're still there. And I think that's going to be important for the VA to partner up with their communities to do that. Corey Weathers is a clinician and author of Military Culture Shift. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Make the Federal Drive part of your culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, when it comes to acquisition and innovation, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy looks to the data. But first, this USDA scientist does work that's down to earth. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Farming these days is a downright scientific enterprise. Precise measurement of soil, water, air, seed conditions all figure in. The work never stops for scientists at the Agricultural Research Service. One of them has been named a meritorious senior professional in this year's Presidential Rank Awards. Bill Custis joins me now. Dr. Custis, good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you're toiling away there at the Agricultural Research Service in Beltsville, Maryland. And tell us about your work. It seems to concern something pretty vital to farming, and that is the interaction of soil with moisture and the atmosphere and so on. My research has been in the development of foundational advances in the measurement and theory of plant water use, also known as evapotranspiration or, in short, ET. Its application in climate and water sciences and their connections to water resources management. That sounds like one of the grand challenges then in agriculture, especially as water supplies get squirrely or dry up in different areas, is just the minimum amount of moisture applied to get the crops to grow properly without wasting a drop. Is that the general theory that you're working on? Yes. So we're trying to develop the technology using remote sensing, principally from satellite observations to help in determining the actual plant water use. And that information becomes essential in trying to develop water use efficiency measures to improve the application and conservation of water resources. And what is in satellite imagery that can tell you that? So one of the key inputs that we use is land surface temperature. And the temperature you can think of for plants is critical because plants regulate their temperatures to, you know, develop the biomass and to ultimately affects yield. So temperature is tightly coupled to water use. So plants bring in carbon and they lose water as well, but that water helps regulate their temperatures. So by observing the temperature, we have an observation of the plant condition and how it's doing. And how does that translate, say, to an individual field where, you know, temperatures vary from county to county or even from, you know, within a zip code, this type of thing? Can this also be coupled with measuring things right there on the ground in this soybean field here? Yeah. So with satellites and in principle Landsat, so the land satellite system has a resolution that looks at temperatures down to uh, almost 30 meter resolution. So within field observations are possible with this satellite system. And that can be used in combined with a modeling tools that we've been developing to estimate the amount of water loss in individual fields. 
Got it. So would you call this, say, applied research? That is to say, if you determine this is the rate of water loss in this area, how does that translate into what, say, a farmer should do in a given spot? Right. So this type of information can be made available to farmers, and it's starting to do with the Open ET project. That is a NASA, USGS, uh, involves universities, as well as Google Earth Engine, and and also nonprofit, including the Environmental Defense Fund, that are developing this technology so that farmers can actually go to a website and actually look at their fields to see how they're doing in terms of water use and conditions in terms of stress and so forth. So this information can ultimately be applied and used by farmers to help determine amount of water being used and how they can regulate it to better levels. We're speaking with Dr. Bill Custis. He's a scientist at the Agricultural Research Service and the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. I guess farming then is all about fine-tuning to local conditions these days, as opposed to just running the sprinkler for an hour like we did in the early 20th century. Yes. So with some of this new technology that's being offered, farmers have the type of information that they can improve upon their irrigation management and scheduling. And that becomes really important as we deal with droughts, more frequency of droughts, for example. And that becomes a real important input now that farmers and growers can use. And in the course of examining this over the years, I wonder if you've come across, besides watering techniques and strategies, more about what certain types of crops and seeds do better in different conditions and maybe fine-tuning what's planted as well. Yeah, that's true. Some of this work is now being used in evaluating different genotypes for crops. What they're finding is that the ultimate yield and water use are so tightly coupled that they can start to develop crops that utilize less water but maintain acceptable yields, especially in areas that are water limited. Yeah, so you'd call that agricultural productivity, I guess, right? Right. In terms of its productivity, there's a term called drop per crop, you know, in terms of trying to maximize yield for the amount of water available to apply. Now, your Presidential Rank Award, Meritorious Senior Service, is this because of this project with NASA, USGS, ARS, and Google Earth, and so on? And what did they tell you they gave you the award for? (laughs) So it's really about the work that I've done laying the foundational modeling effort that can utilize this satellite data and produce reliable water use and plant stress estimates. And because this modeling tool is robust enough that it can be applied to various landscapes and conditions, it's being used in both the Open ET project, which has started out west and is expanding across the continental U.S. to be applied, as well as in the European Space Agency, they have a project using their suite of Sentinel satellites that they have orbiting, and they're utilizing this modeling tool in terms of doing even things at a global scale. Interesting. And just personally, how did you come to this particular branch of research? Well, it really started with my PhD work at Cornell with my uh, advisor. 
he was developing the theory of using atmospheric information to get at evapotranspiration. And when I came to USDA, they were developing remote sensing methods, and I was then able to tie what I was doing in the atmosphere, what was happening with the remote sensing aspects, and coupling those into what we have today. But you didn't come out of the Iowa cornfields where your dad labored for years and years and years. That's not the story here, right? Right. So initially, I was doing this type of work in natural ecosystems, but it transferred easily over to what we do in agriculture and realized that agriculture includes grasslands, prairies, you know, these are all part of agriculture. They're all utilized by agriculture. So it's more than just soybean and corn that we're dealing with. Yeah. And do you find that at the Agricultural Research Service, that sounds like a a place that's supportive of lots of ideas and the daily life is very much data-driven and research-oriented, sounds like. Yeah. They really support the basic research as well as applied. And they realize that some of this basic research takes considerable time to develop into something that ultimately becomes operational. You know, the work that I've been doing, which started, you know, 30-something years ago, is now coming to fruition. And now that we have the technology capabilities of making this data available and more routine methods, including, you know, ultimately on, on your smartphone is the ultimate goal, where where farmers could go in the field and actually see their field from their phone. And as more and more commercial entities launch more and more fine-grained satellites, it sounds like the potential in the future is to get even more detailed and more resolution at what's looked at. Yeah, that's true. There are commercial entities out there that are developing small satellites that orbit lower to the atmosphere so they can set up a suite of satellites that give more information. And, you know, most importantly, if we can observe what's happening, then we can predict what's happening. So observational measurements are really key in in being able to continuously monitoring what's going on on the Earth's surface. And just a final question, ultimately, with this OpenET project, why only farmers Could someone, say a homeowner, say, gee, I want to get this fescue even greener. Now I know (laughs) on my phone exactly when and how to water it. Well, you know, some of the work that's ongoing is, is understanding the urban environment, understanding water use by golf courses and and other entities that grass grown in in urban environments. And these types of satellite observations can be used to better understand, again, developing water-saving strategies in urban environments. And also how important green space is in urban environments in dealing with heat waves and so forth that are becoming more and more prevalent. And maybe it's time to learn how to putt on a sand green. (laughs) Dr. Bill Custis is a scientist at the Agricultural Research Service and the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Thanks so much for a fascinating piece of insight. Well, thank you for having me. I hope it's interesting for those folks who listen to your broadcast. Yep, we love that kind of stuff. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, when it comes to acquisition and innovation, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy looks to the data. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Office of Federal Procurement Policy, OFPP, preaches a risk management, not a risk-averse approach to federal acquisition. Getting a risk management culture down to people in the field, that hasn't been so easy. Christine Harada is the OFPP senior advisor. She tells executive editor Jason Miller why she hopes data from category management and other initiatives could help. The engagement with the leadership and the workforce itself and encouraging, you know, more of this risk management kind of mindset and incorporating that through our training, but also trying to reward for that. This also, you know, stems a lot from the data that we've been able to share across the entirety of the federal government, you know, as you and your audience base will likely very well recall, as for category management was really stood up during the Obama administration, and it absolutely remains a signature initiative for us. And that those policies and practices have really shaped around helping the government buy as a much more organized entity. And that lies very much at the heart of our ability to be able to meet our country's demands within today's constrained budget environment and by Moving away from that model where everybody fended for themselves to a much more enterprise-wide approach, we've been able to avoid upwards of $90 billion in costs for taxpayers since 2016. And so for those reasons, we're continuing to work with agencies to lean on the strong stewardship management that category management promotes. And that, it, that I, in my view, I think is very much in alignment with a lot of the work around innovation. So how do we take the good work that's being done that's innovative? How do we help mainstream it? How do we help bake it into the overall category management approach so that it's it becomes a much more natural feeder, if you will, for better practices? I appreciate the fact you brought up category management because I was going to go there next around marketplace is another one of your your big priority areas or focus areas. There's a lot of concern about category management and strategic sourcing and this term best-in-class contracts. Just generally, how is OFPP looking at these things? As you said, there's a lot of cost avoidance through category management. There's also a lot of concern about the downward pressure on on small businesses that category management and and best-in-class contracts are bringing. What are you all doing to help agencies strike that right balance? In our use of both category management and best-in-class contracts is absolutely pursued in a manner that is consistent with our equity goals. And I'm happy to report that spend to small businesses through the use of best-in-class solutions has actually remained high relative to the overall small business spend. And it's well above the 23% government-wide goal. For the best-in-class business uh, solutions, it is 38.5% small businesses. And so I recognize that there are you know, that there's a lot of perception or and probably lived experiences out there with respect to small businesses, you know, trying to figure out how do I get on the best in class solution, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of efforts underway to help increase opportunities to small businesses through the establishment of new best in class solutions like Oasis Plus, Professional Services IDIQ, uh, Polaris, right, which is a small business uh, government wide acquisition for uh, IT. And, you know, we also issued an OMB guidance memo in 2022 for agencies to ensure that category management plans, you know, do not necessarily prioritize spending on best-in-class solutions at the expense of meeting socioeconomic small business goals and providing maximum opportunity to small businesses as best we can. And it certainly is remains a very heavy point of emphasis and focus for this administration. Because as we use category management to build the overall strength of the federal marketplace, uh, we're also making really good progress to instill equity. So, for example, as you may know, and probably reported on last year, the Biden-Harris administration broke all sorts of records in its spend to small businesses in each of the four underserved communities. 
And we are absolutely super proud to be supporting small business growth and building that kind of generational wealth throughout the United States. And we're cautiously optimistic that we will continue to see upper trends when the FY23 data is finalized. So far, preliminary indicators is that we're doing pretty well on that front. One of the things when you talk about the small business spend when it comes to category management and best-in-class contracts, are you all tracking or, or working with agencies to track some way the industrial base size, meaning, yes, 38.5% of those awards went to small businesses, but if that money went to, and you picked a number, 1,000 small businesses versus 5,000 or 7,000 small businesses, you're not necessarily making that pie bigger or better. You're just, you're limiting that pie because, well, you're on the small business contract, but I'm not. And, and therefore, because OFPP and OMB are really pushing agencies to use these best-in-class contracts, that impacts my ability to actually play in this market. Even though the numbers look good, the number of contractors or awards to different contractors, that's a challenge. Are you tracking that? Are you looking at that? Because I think that's the big concern, not the dollars per se, but the numbers of contractors. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And as you know, we're focused not only on the dollars, but also in the breadth and depth of small business participation in the federal marketplace. And in fact, I think our Jason Miller put it best when he said that the record-breaking number of applications to start new small businesses creates an imperative on the federal marketplace to be able to leverage that growth in supply chains that support agency missions and reverse the decline that we've been seeing since 2010. And to help meet that challenge, we released new guidance to strengthen management attention on new entrants. And I think what's particularly noteworthy is that this administration also deployed two tools to assist agencies with finding and measuring new and recent entrant participation, right? We've got the federal supplier base dashboard that helps agencies track their performance over time uh, by comparing the composition of the contractor base, as well as the uh, procurement equity uh, tool as well, so that you know we can ensure that we're doing that kind of appropriate outreach, et cetera. Uh, we've also appreciated very much your highlighting how we're taking advantage of the data and technology to help agencies make those inroads. And that's just, you know, a simple example of how we are trying to instill equity by moving towards a more high definition or like greater data integrated environment. When you look at those tools and you're looking uh, at the data that comes from those tools, are you seeing more entrants? Are you seeing more, not just opportunities, for small businesses, but is the industrial base starting to grow? Is there any data or any any kind of even feeling of trends as you look at this that says, okay, these tools and the efforts by agencies not to, just to go, okay, well, Christine's on the best in class. I'll just continue to give her so I can get my credit, and, and those that thirty eight percent goes to forty percent. But Christine is 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 more is lucky, but Jason doesn't get anything because he's not on best in class. Are you starting to look at the industrial base and say? Or was we're seeing some positive impact, or is it maybe too soon? So it's a little early, but the early indicators are that we are indeed seeing good progress on that front. And some of those indicators include not just the contractor base, a number of companies, you know, where the dollars are actually going to, et cetera, but also the in the aggregate amount as well. And I think that it is absolutely notable in this current environment, because we were dealt a very significant curveball in the acquisition community. As you may recall, in late July, the SBA 8A program was dealt a pretty, you know, I think a pretty devastating blow through the Ultima Services Corporation decision. And as you said earlier, the fourth quarter, and especially the last two weeks of the fiscal year, are historically the biggest spending windows when it comes to small businesses and SDBs in particular. And historically, fun facts, 
Federal agencies obligate roughly 40% of all small business spending in the fourth quarter, and nearly one-fifth of uh, small disadvantaged business spending happens in just the final two weeks of the fiscal year. And so we were scrambling big time in a good way, and I'm very pleased with you know, the overall outcomes, the efforts of the agencies, as well as SBA, really pulled together to be able to turn this around. Christine Harada, senior advisor in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. House lawmakers are calling on the Department of Veterans Affairs to shed more light into an internal investigation looking into alleged sexual harassment. The House VA committee issued a subpoena after hearing complaints from VA employees. The employees claim harassment from senior leaders within the VA's office that normally investigates these types of claims. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with the story. And let's talk about what's exactly going on. These are whistleblower complaints, Jory? They are. And what has been laid out from the committee here is that VA employees dating back to summer of 2022 have documented cases where leaders from the VA Office of Resolution Management, Diversity and Inclusion have been sexually harassing employees and then, you know, in some cases retaliating against employees who come forward. To give you one example, we're not using names in the situation, but one of the employees who came forward to the committee and VA leadership about these allegations, what we heard from VA employees who then went forward to the committee and VA leadership, they described situations where VA managers within the Office of Resolution Management, Diversity and Inclusion were sexually harassing these employees, saying things that were improper in a workplace setting to them. And uh, when they went forward to supervisors to say that this is inappropriate. They agreed. They recommended disciplinary action against the accused here. And then those leaders in turn sexually harassed these employees as well, said things that were also inappropriate to these uh, employees who then went forward to the House VA committee with their concerns. So the employees reported this action, this sexual harassment, then in turn were greeted with retaliation by the same people. That's correct. And that's why they went through to lawmakers after they didn't get the kind of results they were hoping for from VA's leadership. Some of these allegations date back to July of 2022, but the committee leadership, they approached VA Secretary Dennis McDonough about these claims late last year in September. They started to send letters about this. In mid-November, the committee Chairman Mike Bost personally called McDonough asking for the VA to take a closer look at these claims. And since that call, the accused here, they've either retired, resigned, or been reassigned within the department. And what we heard from Bost at this uh, committee hearing where they did approve this uh, subpoena, he says that the VA has not been forthcoming with the details of its internal investigation and that to date the committee has issued seven letters about this and that they really just need more details from the VA about what's going on. I've seen damning evidence of sexual harassment that was ignored by senior officials at VAs for months. If it was not for the brave whistleblowers and this committee's investigation, there is no telling where or if VA would have taken this sexual harassment allegation seriously. All right. And then that's Chairman Mike Bost of the VA committee. And 
Jory, what kinds of things are they alleging besides language? And also, is this all women complaining about male managers or what What else do we know? At this point, this is about as much as we know. We uh, have heard that at least one of the whistleblowers is a woman who has made these concerns known to the committee and to VA leadership. Uh, but we don't know the full scope of everything. And in fact, some members of the committee were careful to not identify the accused because that might actually turn around and identify the whistleblowers in this case. And so they want to make sure that everything is uh, on the up and up and that they are not throwing these names out here until a final investigation has been completed. And on this point, we heard from the ranking member of the IT Modernization Subcommittee, Sheila Cherfless-McCormick. So I want to ensure that we could take extra steps and mechanisms to protect the whistleblower, because part of the strength and bravery it takes to come out is to know that you're actually going to be protected. And so far as we know, the activities that are being reported were harassment in nature and not sexual abuse, which would be physical. But it's mostly language and types of behaviors that create a bad working environment without actually laying hands on people. Yeah, at this point, what we've seen is text messages and emails that uh, are inappropriate from the perspective of these VA employees. The committee has sent reporters some versions of what they have as far as evidence, and uh, it is certainly not the kind of language you would have uh, in any kind of workplace situation. And Or that we can repeat on family radio. Right. Yeah. Gosh, what in the heck were people thinking? And Jory, what else do we know about that VA internal investigation? Who's doing it and what have they found so far? Yeah, so the VA is conducting its own internal review of this uh, separate division, the Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection. They expect to have their own investigation complete by the end of this month. Actually, a second investigation is also underway, uh, and it's being conducted by the Postal Service's Equal Employment Opportunity Office of all places. They are taking on that secondary independent investigation because this is, again, an office that normally handles within VA these types of sexual harassment claims. So not sure why it is specifically the Postal Service that is being asked to conduct this investigation, but they are also doing their own review of ORMDI. And right now, not the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General, so far as we know. No, and that was one of the concerns raised by the one holdout on the subpoena vote, the ranking member, Mark Takano. He said that there are a number of investigations already underway. It was not clear to him what the committee's own investigation would contribute to those investigations. And he did say that at this point, the VA Inspector General's office, as far as he knows, has not been involved. And at the hearing, who was answering for the department and what were they saying about the allegations? So this was a business meeting of the committee. There was no VA officials uh, communicating to the committee about the uh, the allegations at this point. But we did hear from the VA press office about this. They said that they will, uh, in fact, have that report, that investigation complete by the end of this month and that they will continue to provide the committee with documents. Since November of last year, the VA has provided the committee with more than a thousand documents, 20 plus transcribed interviews from VA officials who were under sworn testimony as part of the VA's investigation. And what the VA has said to the press is that the VA does not tolerate sexual harassment and they are treating these allegations with the utmost seriousness. And the next step then would be what? Well, we'll have to see what this investigation at the end of the month pans out, what 
is said from there, what the committee feels about the end of that report. And, you know, it's worth pointing out that we will hear from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough in his monthly press conference roughly around that point. So you can expect reporters to have questions about the you know, conclusion of that report and next steps from there. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.